This is episode 530 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. What allowed the early church to thrive under great persecution was the fact that they fully understood the kingdom of God and the blessed ramifications of God being their king. But they also were fully aware that they were not only subjects of the great king, but children of his. In fact, as beloved children, they became heirs, and Paul says, joint heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a moment, and let me ask a few questions about being a child of God. First, what does it mean for you as a child of royalty right now in your present situation? Two, what confidence do you have knowing that you are a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus? And finally, how does it make you feel when you fully understand the fact that nothing, not even your sins, your transgressions, failures, shortcomings, nothing can separate you from the love of your father, the king? Yeah, I thought so. Join us as we discover what it means to be a child of royalty, especially when that royalty is God himself as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I uh, shared part of this with you a couple weeks ago. We've gone through the book of Acts, gone through, um, I don't know, six or seven chapters now, looking at the early church. Because what we're trying to glean from them is how they were able to persevere and thrive under the attacks that they went through. They didn't have the structure that we have. They didn't have the finances. They didn't have churches on every street corner or history, denominations, Christian bookstores, Christian television. They had none of that. All they had was the fact that these people had accepted Christ. They'd been rejected by their family and friends from Judaism. Some of their leaders were getting flogged and Later on, we find out some of them are actually getting killed. Great persecution takes place. People flee Jerusalem from the cities and uh, scatter everywhere. But nevertheless, whatever attack took place, it always ended up with the church growing stronger. They didn't quake. They didn't worry. They didn't bite their fingernails. They didn't, oh, woe is me. Instead, it was like, bring it on because we serve a mighty God. Bring it on, because greater is he living in me than anything the world can throw at me. If you remember, as a quick review here, we had in Acts chapter 4, this external attack. And what we find in the early chapters of the book of Acts, it's an external attack, church grows stronger. An internal attack, church grows stronger. A more intense external attack, church grows stronger. A more intense internal attack, same situation. We have the response, of course, is after that, the church remained unified. They spoke the word of God with boldness, and they actually, what we call power evangelism, looking at a couple weeks ago, they, God actually confirmed their message with various signs. So if Satan can't destroy the church externally, we'll work on the inside. So we have an eternal attack. We have Ananias and Sapphira who are lying to the Holy Spirit, who seems to us on the surface wasn't that big a deal, but it was because it was breaking up unity and trust within the church. So God quickly judged them in a rather horrific, in my opinion, not judging what God did. It seems in our culture an over-the-top punishment for this infraction. And what happened? 
Great fear came upon all the church and everybody else lost and saved who heard about these events. Church grew stronger. We threatened them. Now let's beat them. Let's imprison them. Let's take it up a notch. So we have in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are threatened with death and literally flogged and beaten because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. Their response, God miraculously delivered, miraculously delivered them, and they wouldn't stop. They continued preaching the word with even more boldness. After the beating, after the attack, it said, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing, something we don't do in our culture, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In our culture, since we believe or we have preached to us, this is your best life now, if you suffer shame for the gospel, obviously you must be doing something wrong. Nevertheless, they met daily in the temple, in the hot bed of their opposition, and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Church grew stronger. Okay, let's have another internal attack. Let's see if we can split this church right down the middle. So now all of a sudden we've got the, uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews, our, our Jewish Christians, are complaining that they're being slighted, being persecuted by the Hebrew Jewish Christians because they were denying their widows their daily allotment of bread. What did the church do? They basically just signed people responsibility for that. They ensured structure, transparency. They stepped up their organization another level, and the church continued to grow. The word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, not just added to their number, but multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many now of the priests were obedient to the faith. We have threatened them. We have beaten them. Now we're going to kill them. All of a sudden, Stephen's killed by this mob. And then Paul, known as Saul at that time, has these murderous threats against the disciples and against the, the church that way. And so what did the church do? They continued to grow as they were scattered throughout the region. Everywhere they went, they continued preaching the gospel message. Acts 8.1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which at Jerusalem, for they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what did they do when they ran? Acts 8.4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, everywhere, preaching the word. All right, Lord, those people are incredible. Those people are dynamos. There's Something about them that's missing in the church today, missing in our lives. Why do we not respond that way? Why are we so afraid? We're afraid of losing our tax-exempt status. We're afraid of being persecuted or somebody maligning us or saying something bad about us on Twitter or Facebook or being deplatformed. We're deathly afraid of losing our job or our money or being fined or sued or something of that nature. They didn't care. So what did they have that we don't. And were they super Christians or were they just Christians? And do we have to be a super Christian to be a Christian? Or can we just be a Christian like they were? Were they at some sort of elevated stature in Christ where God only did things to those people? Or 
Have, has our Christianity mellowed? Have we become maybe a little bit more lukewarm? Has life changed? Or what I'm interested in is what can we learn spiritually about thriving under extreme persecution? Because whether you like to hear it or not, the day is coming. About three years ago, I began sharing some messages with you that uh, I was accused of being negative, doom and gloom. I talked about the fact that life was going to start changing in the United States, especially after COVID hit, that we would lose our rights, that uh, you would find shortages, that inflation would hit. Do you remember all those things? And every one of them are happening, but they haven't even become full board. It's not because I'm a prophet. It's because people have been talking about this stuff, and the data reveals that if you just take the time to look at it. Believe me, church persecution is coming. You've got the woke democratic faction, and you've got everybody else that's opposite of that. And if you will listen to the verbiage now, here is that group that we have to cancel that Biden says is the worst terror threat to to the stability of the United States. It's three groups of people. It is Republicans, it is conservatives, it is Christians. And they're all being lumped together. So how in the world can we thrive like this? What can we learn from them? And I'm going to share with you just a couple truths today that I hope will be a great encouragement to you. But before we do, we need to look, and I'm going to go through this quickly, at what Jesus preached. When we think about the gospel, we think about Um, salvation. We think about forgiveness of sin. We want the Lord to teach us how to evangelize. We want to learn how to worship. Do we worship like this? Do we worship with hymns? Do we worship with a praise band? What Bible translation do we use? Can he teach us how to teach or teach us how to do these kind of things? And, And we kind of take all of Christianity and splinter it in a million different directions. And then when we look, when you take just a in-depth look at the message that Jesus preached, it was very specific. And it's a message we never, hardly ever preach today. I can remember maybe in my entire lifetime hearing probably half a dozen messages preached on this. And Jesus preached about it all the time. He began his ministry just like John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And I will be sending you some things this week that will take a couple of these passages we're going to be looking at today and amplify them with some of the tools we learned over the last two weeks to help you grow in your understanding of his word. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, not be forgiven of your sins or the Messiah is coming, but repent. Why? Because if you don't, you go to hell. I didn't say that. Why? Because if you don't, you'll have no relationship with my father. That's true. That's not what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is imminent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. What in the world is the kingdom of heaven? But that's not the only time he said it. A few verses later, at the end of chapter 4, before we begin the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew gives us a summary verse. This is a verse that kind of uh, shows us in totality what Jesus' ministry was like in the very beginning. And he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news 
about some kingdom with some king that supposedly is supposed to make everything different. And because we're in this kingdom, this good news about the kingdom of God that is here or imminent, Jesus then amplified that by showing us things that happen in his kingdom, like healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. That's his realm. That's the kingdom realm. And then, of course, we begin the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins with the Beatitudes. And I, again, I'm, I'm giving you just a few of these. And so he begins the Sermon on the Mount. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the destitute, blessed are those that realize that there's nothing they can do to secure on their own eternal life, because theirs is salvation, theirs is eternal life, there is the wonderful bliss of going to heaven when you die. No. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, seek after righteousness, kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is listed all through the, uh, the uh, book of Matthew, especially on the Sermon on the Mount. And then we get to the crux verse, which is supposed to take away our worry. The things we worry about. What about my money? What about my retirement? What about my house? What about the debts that I have? What about our government? What about inflation? What about all these things that are going to happen? Look at the stuff that I could lose. I've become destitute. I mean, I'm so worried about that, God. What am I supposed to do? It's really simple. Seek first. What, a deeper relationship with you? Seek first memorizing Bible verses? Seek first tithing 20%? What that we talk about today? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is manifested in his kingdom, and God will take care of everything else. Okay, but what in the world is the kingdom? After the Sermon on the Mount, we get another summary verse to let us know what Jesus' ministry was all about. It is now a year and a half, close to two years, according to the chronology of Matthew, into his ministry. And what is he doing? He went about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the, here we go again, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And then he says, you know what, guys? You've watched me do this for years. It's now time I send you out two by two to do exactly what I'm doing. I want you to go out, and I'm going to give you the same power and spirit that I have. I want you to go out and proclaim the good news. And here's the instructions he gave them. And as you go, preach. The Messiah is here. You know, if you confess your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll go to heaven when you die. No, although that's all true. Preach the same message John the Baptist preached, the same message I've been preaching, you preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything is about the kingdom. If you will go through the parables, you will find in Matthew chapter 18, there are seven key parables the parable of the sower, the parable of the, the pearl of great price, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field, the parable of the wheat and tares, all of them have to do with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, like what? Well, a man who discovered this treasure hidden in a field, and seeing that, he went and sold everything that he had to buy that field, because nothing is more important than the kingdom of heaven. When Peter 
had his confession of Christ. This is the turning point in the book of Matthew. Beginning in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus then begins to tell them after this confession of Christ what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by men. I'm going to put in the hands of sinful men. I'll be crucified. I'll be killed, but I'll be raised on the third day. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. The chapter after this, all of a sudden, Jesus now reveals himself to his disciple, uh, showing them a little of his glory in the transfiguration. But if you remember, who do the people say that I am? Peter, you are the son of God, you're the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven did, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's nothing about the stuff we talk about. It's always about the kingdom of heaven. The disciples want to know what kind of traits it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven. They want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to answer that question by giving them parable after parable after parable after parable. And the thread that runs through every one of those parables is what the point is. The kingdom of heaven is like king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Parable. Little kids come to Jesus. Disciples rebuke them. He's too busy for you kids. He needs to hang around the adults. And Jesus says, no, let the little kids with childlike faith, total acceptance and belief come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, I will tell you that it's really hard to get into the kingdom of heaven if you view this world as the exciting world, if you focus on money, because money robs your heart of me. So surely I say to you, it's hard for a rich man not to go to heaven, not to be blessed, not to have an intimate relationship with me, not to understand my word or hear my voice or or let me empower you in your work, but to enter in the kingdom of heaven. For I say it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's all about this kingdom. More parables. Kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Kingdom of heaven is like a certain king arranging a marriage for a son. Kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins. Kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. The kingdom of heaven, it's always about the kingdom of heaven. Well, I thought Jesus was about salvation. but well, It is. But even when he had his conversation with Nicodemus, where he's leading Nicodemus into a deeper relationship with him, where he's talking about being born again, what we understand, the salvation message, the John 3.16, if you look at this in context with Nicodemus, the salvation to Nicodemus, according to the words of Christ, was being able to enter and see the kingdom of heaven. Look at how it begins. Jesus answered to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, what, he can't go to heaven? He can't have a relationship with God? He can't be forgiven of his sins? Yes, but that's not what Jesus' focus is. He cannot see, cannot even perceive in his mind the kingdom of heaven. Two verses later, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
We're gone all the way through the book of Matthew, we're beginning the book of John, all through the gospel accounts. Jesus' message was centered, centered on the kingdom. And all this took place before his resurrection, pointing to what my resurrection is going to bring you, pointing to the fact that I will pay for your sins, that God will pour his wrath out on me on the cross, that I will defeat death and the grave and Satan and be raised again. All of that took place in order for you and I to understand what it, the importance of living in his kingdom. And then Jesus was raised for the dead. And for 40 days, 40 days, he traveled this earth before his ascension. We don't know much about what he did during those 40 days. We know he met with some of the disciples. He was seen by over 500 at one time. There was the, there was the uh, two events in the upper room where, for example, with Thomas, he said, you know, to put your hand in my side and uh, your fingers in the holes in my hand. He t- the two men on the, the way to Emmaus. There were some accounts we have of that. We don't know about his message until we get to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells us exactly what his message was after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The formal account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He began his ministry. He fulfilled his ministry. He ended his ministry telling people about the kingdom of God. When you were growing up, how many messages did you ever hear about the kingdom? Well, none. We don't even know what it means to have a king. I mean, we're democratic people. We were born out of rebellion against the king in England at that time. And, you know, we complain about things and we have our rights. And since the power in our government is vested with us, the the thought of having a sovereign king who had the right over everything over our lives is is anathema to, to us. We don't even understand it. No, no, I have rights. I have the freedom of speech. I have the freedom of assembly. I have the freedom of maintaining private property. Not if you live under a king. Everything a king, every right that you have is given by the king. There's no other force to appeal to to override a king. And because in our culture, we can't even get our mind around what it means to live under a king, we hardly ever preach about it because we flat don't understand it. When you have a king, you have no rights because he is king. In our situation, we have all the rights. If we don't like the government, we'll complain about it, we'll demonstrate, we'll vote them out, we'll become involved with political action committees, we'll do whatever we want to to mitigate the direction we want to go. But under a king, you can't do that. Life and death are in the hands of a king. But we have a king. King has a kingdom, and our king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to live under a king? And the amazing thing about Scripture, if you'll start looking at it, is Jesus doesn't say that we are serfs, that we are 
He's like a feudal lord that he constantly pushes us down, that he takes the best from us, that we have to eke out our substance in the mud while he just gets rich like a human king. Instead, he talks about the fact that we're not servants or slaves, but he's even elevated us to a point that we're a bond slave. You understand the history of a bond slave during the year of Jubilee and Deuteronomy chapter 15, 14, and 15, it says that if a man purchases a Jewish slave, like an indentured servitude, I brought you over from Europe, and so you owe me seven years' labor, that at the end of the seven years, he basically has to give that person freedom. But if that person says, no, I like it with you, I'm part of your family, if you don't mind, I'd like to spend the rest of my days voluntarily being your slave, that the owner will then take his ear and take an awl and punch a hole in his ear and he'll wear an earring, which means that he has voluntarily committed himself in life to his master. Paul called himself a bond slave. It's a doulos in the Greek. It means that these people of Christ have taken all their freedom and they've recognized Jesus as king. And instead of waiting until he comes and sets up his kingdom, they are here and now giving him full authority over their life. I will recognize you as king. Well, that would be great. But because we're loved so much, Paul says that we're not just servants anymore, but we're children of the king. Wow. Adopted children of the king. And if children of the king, then we are heirs, literally joint heirs with Christ because of his love and grace for us. What does it mean to be a child of royalty when the royalty is God Almighty? Well, I, I worry about so many things. You wouldn't if you understood your position in him. You wouldn't if you understood that you're a child of the king of the universe, and not only a child, but an heir, a joint heir with Christ, according to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at that in just a minute. What, how would that change things? What would that do for you? Just so you'll understand the true reality of your position, whether you feel like it or not, here's what it says in Romans 8, 14, and 15. And by the way, there's good news and not so good news from our perspective in this. Let me give you the good news first. For as many as led by the Spirit of God... For as many have the Holy Spirit living in them, and he directs them, these, the ones led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. Sons of God. How is that possible? It's really simple. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Oh, I've been alienated from God because of the inherent sin I have is just coming from Adam. And now all of a sudden, that sin has been satisfied by the blood of Christ. And God now gives me his spirit. And the spirit of adoption, he brings me into his family as a son. So much so that we cry out, Papa, Daddy, Father to God Almighty. What if I really live like that? That I believe I was a child of God. 
with all the benefits that come from that and the confidence and the assurance, assurance and the security to know that nothing goes beyond God. It continues. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And to show you how good it gets, if children, then heirs, heirs of everything of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But is that just given to us? Is that just a blessing that, that is just haphazardly handed out like cotton candy at a fair? No, there's a condition. And the condition is that we understand that our life may be like our Savior. If indeed we suffer with him. Why do I want to suffer with him? Oh, that I may be glorified together with him. As Christ, like me. As, as the Father, as, the, as Jesus is the master of the house, and the servants want to be like the master, as they do to the master, so they will do to the servants. Jesus told us that. No, 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 I, I don't want that. I, I want the blessings. I want the joint heir. I want all the, the goodie box. I want the fun stuff, but I, I, don't, I don't want any bad times or bad sufferings, because if I do, it makes me feel like you don't love me. No, it makes us realize that we don't really understand him. Because as children, you know this in your own life. We are not immune to suffering. We're not immune to physical suffering. We're not immune to circumstances happening that are beyond our control. We're not immune to relationships being shattered. We're not immune to children dying and spouses passing away and parents dying and leaving us orphans. Things like that happen. Most of our prayer requests are praying for people who are suffering. We're asking God to intervene on their life. Yet Christ also suffered. The difference was he didn't despair because he trusted himself to his father, that I know my father's in control. And so therefore, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to fix it because I know my father loves me explicitly. He's my father. I'm his son. I'm an heir. And I have an example in front of me of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, suffered more than any of us probably ever has, yet did not despair. So how do we, how do we learn to suffer like that? How do we learn to go through tough times just trusting him? Well, that's really one of the points that Peter brings out. Here's what he says. And this is just verse 20, chapter uh, 2, 1 Peter, verses 21 and 23. If you will read prior to that, that we're always supposed to do, in context, what he's saying here is that if you suffer and are mistreated for doing good, Here's the things that you should do. You're not talking about suffering for being a criminal. We're talking about suffering for doing what is right. Suffering for holding on to the truth. Being deplatformed. Being having your family and friends turned against you. Having our culture turning on losing your job because of the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. For to this you are called. Well, to what? Read the context. To suffering and mistreatment. No, no. They told me if I come to Christ and I have a, a cattle on a thousand hills, that I'm the head and not the tail, that he'll always give me everything that I want, cars and houses and money and all that. Kind. No, that's our culture saying that. 
It's not what Christ said. All who desire to live godly in Christ, remember from last week, will suffer persecution. Why? Because Christ lived godly in him and suffered persecution. But we were called to suffer because Christ also suffered for us. And when he did, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And the example is how he suffered. Who committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How did he do that? Really simple. He committed himself to his father. He committed himself to the one who could change it like that. He committed himself to the one who, as he told, um, as he told Peter in the garden when the guards were taking him away, Do put away your sword. Do you not realize at my disposal are legions of angels at the rim of the universe with their hands on their sword, just waiting for the word to come down and obliterate Jesus' enemies? But that's not God's will. And so therefore he suffered because he trusted to him who judges righteously. Can we do that? It continues about Christ, who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree. Talk about suffering. That we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed or delivered. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Suffering comes in the Christian life. He came with Jesus, but nevertheless, he wasn't in despair. He didn't worry about it. He trusted himself to his father. The early church understood this. They understood that it's just part of the Christian life. They also understood that as children of royalty, with God God the Father being their father as revealed through Jesus Christ, that God the Father can do anything he wants. Do you realize that? Anything. If you have cancer, he could heal it. If you have money problems, you could, somebody could hand you a lottery ticket or you could wake up in the morning with a pot of gold outside your house. He can do whatever he wants. He can restore any relationship he wants to. He can do anything that he wants. Sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. When he does, we rejoice. God, you're good. When he doesn't, God, you're not good. But that's not true. Because he's bigger than we are and stronger than we are and knows us better. He knows exactly what he's doing. He can rescue those he loves at any time, under any circumstance that he chooses, but the choice is always his. Jesus understood that. Lord, if it's possible, possible. There's my closest disciples over there sleeping. In just a few minutes, this garden's going to open up with torches. They're going to take me and beat me. You're going to pour the wrath of the sin of mankind upon me. As I'm hanging on the cross, I'll be rejected by all. If it's possible, can we do this another way? Nevertheless, I trust myself to you. I trust you know what you're doing. So as Jesus did, we should do. Because that's exactly what the early church did. They trusted him regardless of the choices of what he chooses and regardless of what he allows us to go through. And there's a reason why. And that's because he knows best for the people he loves. The early church understood this. Therefore, they 
Thank you, Lord. We're rejoicing, Lord, because you found us worthy to go through suffering like you went through. Hallelujah. Because it's obviously going to make us stronger in our faith. We suffering, oh, life's over. Because we're not trusting ourselves to the fact that God knows best. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? What, we die? We die? And what happens then? Bliss. Bliss. You know, our problem is we hang on so tight to this life right here, as tight as we can, because we can't imagine it can be any better than it is right now. What a horrible thought. The only people on earth whom this life is their best life now are those people going to hell. Do you realize that? To every one of us who are saved, this is not our best life now. It is our worst life now because everything beyond it is amazing because we're in the presence of God. And when we understand that, like the early church did, it gives them boldness to thrive when things don't go the way they want to. Romans chapter 8, this is a um, very familiar passage, and sometimes it's used haphazardly, and sometimes it's almost used as a weapon, something, someone comes and shares to you something really bad that's happening to you. Well, you know, all things work together for good, and have a great day. But uh, the fact is, it's a powerful verse when you really understand what it's saying. And I'll be sending something out to you on Monday, taking this verse, and we're going to dig a little deeper. And we know by experience, that all things, good things, bad things, horrific things, wonderful things, our worst nightmare, things that are generated from God, and things Satan does to you. That the, the agony that Job went through, that God gave Satan permission to take his health, his wealth, and his family away from him, even that is part of the all things. All things somehow work together for good, supernaturally work together. Well, good for who? Good for God? Yes. Good for us? Obviously, if it's good for God, but it's not to everybody. There's two categories of people that this happens to, to those who love him more than anything. If I love him more than anything, I will trust him. And therefore, whatever lot he places on me, whatever he has me go through whatever trial and tribulation or pain that I'm, that I'm struggling with, I love him anyway. You know, he slay me, yet I will praise him. And the second category are those who are, note the definitive article, the called. That's a specific call. That's an effectual call that he talks about, Paul talks about later on in this. The called according to his purpose. I love God, and you've called me to live in your choice for my life, your divine purpose, good, bad, mediocre, horrific. And so therefore, I'm called according to your purpose, and I realize that because I trust you, and you have the end, no, the end from the beginning, and you can do anything you want, I'm satisfied with where you have placed me. They knew this. They knew this completely. They knew that they had lost their jobs and their homes. They had sold their possessions and gave them to this common pot that 
other people could be blessed by. They were trusting the Lord to meet their daily substance. They weren't independent contractors trying to make little bitty empires in the world right now. Maybe they were before, but not now. They realized that they probably didn't have health insurance. They realized that they got sick. God would heal them or he wouldn't. And if he healed them, we praise him. If he doesn't, we won't. Back to facing the giants. If we win, we'll praise him. If we don't, we'll praise him. It doesn't matter because we're trusting him for everything we're going through. They lived by that. And that's how they were able to thrive under persecution and under hardship because their focus was on their father's love. And the fact that their God was not too small. When I do counseling, whatever kind of counseling it is, and somebody's sharing with me the terrible problem they're going through and how they're struggling, they don't know what to do, I find that in most circumstances, the question, the, the solution is the fact that your God's too small. Well, what do you mean? Well, you're worried. Well, of course I'm worried. Why are you worried? Well, because what if this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen? Well, you can't control any of that. If your God was bigger, you would trust him. I would pray to him. I would lay it at his feet. My father, not just my master, but my father understands what I'm going through. He's wiser and smarter than I am. And so therefore, I place it at his feet. Dad, will you take care of this? And however he takes care of it, if he was big and magnanimous like he should be, I would just leave it there and trust him. But we don't. Because our God's too small. Our God is just the little God we have on our dashboard that we ask to bless our problems or bless what we want to do or, or we come to him like Yoda for some six-word advice, you know, you do or don't do, there is no try. Okay, thanks, thanks, Yoda. And then we move on and do something else. But that's not how their God was. They understood how much they were loved by him. And because they were loved by him, whatever happens in our nation or in our lives doesn't matter. He's in control. Psalm 115, verse 3, my life verse, our God is in his heavens and he does what he pleases. He will either answer my prayer request or he won't. He will either alleviate my pain or he won't. He will either do what I can't even imagine he would do or he won't. And whatever he does, he does because he loves us. And when I can embrace his love, that he really cares about us, and it's not trying to just beat me down and be mean to me because I'm the least favorite of the kids, which, by the way, I am. The fact is that it allows me to have the faith like they had to thrive because he is sovereign. I want you to watch this. This is amazing. They understood that God sees the end from the beginning, and they understood that he knew everything in advance. So whatever terrible thing happened to them, they weren't surprised by it because they knew God wasn't surprised by it. So the church has been threatened. They've lost everything. They come back. The disciples report to them what the Sanhedrin said about the fact that you can no longer teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ because if you do, we're going to cancel you. We're going to steal your money from you. We're going to kick you out of your home. We're going to make you vagabonds. You're going to lose everything that you and your family have ever worked for. And they basically just broke out in a spontaneous prayer. And look at the prayer here. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom, the, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they were gathered together. And what did they do to Jesus? They killed him. They're tormenting us. They ended up killing some of our members. But they're doing all these terrible things. But those terrible things were whatever your hand and your purpose determine beforehand to do. Oh, so what I'm going through right now, God, and standing in front of the Sanhedrin, it's not a surprise to you. You're not up there wringing your hands going, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. No, you could get me out of this if you wanted to. You've gotten Peter out of prison, and, and you know you, you do anything that you want. You've raised people from the dead. But in this situation, you're doing what you want to do because you have a plan. And the plan is that we go through this. So God, we will joyfully go through this because you are sovereign. But the key to being able to thrive during the tough times God may sovereignly ask us as a people to go through or you as an individual is the fact to know that he loves you, that he truly loves you more than anything. So I want to share with you in closing a very familiar verse. And again, later on this week, I'm going to send you an email and we're going to be breaking this down in more detail to help out. But here's what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? By the way, your circumstances? Because I want you to look at the worst circumstance you've ever been through and compare it to what it says here and see if it can even closely measure up. Shall tribulation? Well, I've been through some of that. Yeah, but to the point of distress or persecution? Oh, that's pretty rough. Yeah, famine, nothing to wear, nowhere to live, somebody going to take my life? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, will they separate us from the love of God? No, because God told me that we're going to go through this, that God sent his son through that. He gave us in 1 Peter the fact that these things are going to happen to us, that we were called to this so we can learn from Christ to live under adversity because we live in his kingdom and not in this kingdom. As it is written, the Old Testament told us about that. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So whatever they throw at us, it's okay. Because our sovereign God who loves us will take all things, all things, and work them together for good. In my generation, you know, you always look at Christian heroes about 10 or 15 years after they pass, in my generation, when I was a young kid, the hero was Jim Elliott, 28 years old, a young who's who in America, went to Wheaton College, went down with a bunch of missionaries to Ecuador, and the Aku Indians speared him to death, and he died in the prime of his life. We wouldn't even know about him if his wife hadn't written the book, Through the Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth L. Do you remember? So what a tragedy. What a terrible thing. What a wasted life. Really? We talk about him now. I mean, he died on the mission field serving God with his whole heart before he reached 30 and has been in heaven since then, since the 50s. What, who's winning, us or him? Imagine. And now his death, of course, has led hundreds of thousands of people to a deeper relationship and deeper commitment to the Lord. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to obtain what he can never lose. 
Jim Elliott in his personal journal five years before he died. As a young man in his early 20s. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, but who cares? We don't look at things from this kingdom. Because in all these things, we are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. Not through us, but through him, ah, here it is again, who loved us. Who loved us. How much so? Well, I'll tell you, I'm firmly convinced, absolutely persuaded, And you should do the same thing today with every struggle that you're going through. Firmly convinced that even though I'm about to lose my job, even though the doctor gave me a bad report, even though my finances are going upside down, even though that I have a strained family that won't have anything to do with me, even though my freedoms are being taken away, even though my life is harder now than it was four years ago. The death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. That's life and death, our biggest fear, the demonic and angelic realm, the present or the future, the height or death, nor any other created thing, which is every institution and every person you know. I'm afraid of Russia. I'm afraid of nuclear war. I'm afraid of famine. That's a created thing. Well, I'm afraid of... The government, I'm afraid of the Supreme Court, I'm, I'm afraid of DSS, I'm afraid of whatever. That's a created thing. I am firmly convinced, Paul says, and the early church echoed this, that nothing the world can throw in me, nothing, even my biggest fear, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We... Um, We have a king, king, and he has a kingdom. And right now we're living in the dying thrones of this despot usurper named Satan and his kingdom of darkness. But you and I transcend that kingdom because we live in Christ and with him. He, he, as the king and the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in us. And he says, that greater is the king in the person of the Holy Spirit living in us than anything out there. And if we rest in that and realize that and love him and trust him, come what may, no matter what, we have faith and confidence and boldness like the early church did to thrive no matter what the little toothless enemy can throw at us. We have a king. And not only are we subject to the king, but we are his child. And if the king would help out his subjects, imagine what a king would do for his children, for his son and his daughter, if we simply just trust the king to do whatever he wants. You realize what amazing confidence we have? Or you should have knowing that you're a child of God? And not only that, but you're a an heir of Christ. And if you, if you study that word, and I went through this as we talked about it, I don't know, years ago, it doesn't mean that God has a, like in a human heir, a fixed set of assets and divides an equal portion to Christ and to you and to me and to all these kind of people. The Greek word, it means that God has an infinite amount of resources and everything he has is his son's and everything he has is yours and everything he has is 
is mine. He lives in you. What more do we need than him in us? Last question. How does it make you feel when you fully understand that there is nothing you can do? Even your failures and your sins, the things that you're most ashamed of, that you don't even want to go to God because you think he's just going to slap you down. Your transgressions, failures, shortcomings, nothing can separate you from the love of the king, of the king, because Christ Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit lives in you. He lives in you. I want you to take every one of the fears that you have. Get to go home, get a sheet of paper. Fear, fact. Just draw a line down the middle and start listing the fears. Oh, I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid of my finances. You know, I'm afraid I'm going to get some sort of illness. I'm afraid of COVID coming back. I'm afraid of government overreach. I'm afraid of, you know, of rioting and afraid of losing my house and my job. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. Petrified by all these things. And go to the other side and go, but I have a father who's the king. Not just a king, the king. He's king of the universe. He's king of creation. He's king of every one of those problems. He's king of the enemy. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And every one of those things that you're afraid of is a slight on the sovereignty and the love and the graciousness of the king. And when you really, you know what? I am afraid of the future, but I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but my father does, and I'm going to trust him. So God, as long as you know what my tomorrow is going to be like, and I love, trust, and know you, I'm okay. Because I know that the nothing that happens will separate me from your love, no matter what tomorrow holds. And you go through every single one of those fears that you have, things that keep you up at night, and you... Trust them to the king, and you will find that your prayer life will change. Because instead of asking God to work out all these things you're worried about, you'll find you'll spend the vast majority of your time praising him for who he is. God, you either work it out or you don't. I don't care. I'm a child of the king. God, you either, I'll either get the job or I won't. God, the relationship with my family will be restored or it won't. God, This thing will happen or it won't. Nevertheless, I'm loved. I'm redeemed. I'm your child. I'm a joint heir with your son. And he's teaching me how to live under uncertainty, just like he did, and thrive because it gives my father glory. There's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Or as Jesus said, there's nothing and no one that can snatch you out of his hand. And if you'll rest and trust in that and think about that this week, I think you'll find your prayer life will change. Your trust in him will change. Don't don't only love him if he does what you want. Because if you have little children, you know what they want us to do as parents is not necessarily the best thing for them. True? I mean, some of my grandkids, if, uh, if, if I only loved them when I gave them what they want, every time they came up to my house, they would eat 45 popsicles. We know that's not healthy, right? That's almost abuse if you do that to a kid. But the fact is, trust him for what he knows best, and you will find that this weight of depression and despair and worry and, and, oh my gosh, i got to figure this out on my own, will absolutely be relieved, and you'll spend your time praying and praising him for who he is. Amen? Let me pray.